Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to the Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, a happy Monday to you. President's Day, I almost, almost made an executive decision that there wouldn't be a new episode today. <clears throat> you know, because it's a banker's holiday, and I'm obviously not a banker. Now, I uh, I don't know, just was sort of feeling I needed an extra day off, but here I am. The reason I decided we needed a fresh episode, honestly, Riley Bunch. She seems nice. Reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It's nothing that she did except her job and do it well. Breaking the news this morning that Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens will indeed be running for re-election in 2025. Oh my gosh, that's an odd number year. Oh, people don't turn out for that. I kind of think there's going to be turnout for the Atlanta municipal elections in 2025. So first things first, we'll go through uh, the interview and then discuss some of the pros and cons of the Dickens term. Uh, Riley, again, breaking this news, uh, dropping about two and a half hours before the show airs, uh, that Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens says he's hoping President Joe Biden doesn't have his eye on him for a potential position in his administration if the Democratic presidential campaign is successful in 2024. I guess someone's been telling Mayor Andre Dickens that there are roles for him in Washington. That in and of itself is news. First line in the article. Uh, which, by the way, we'll include in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Uh, Buns continues, that's because Dickens has confirmed he will be launching a re-election bid in 2025. The first-term mayor said his current gig is the job he's wanted since age 16 and a position he doesn't want to forfeit anytime soon. Saying, I definitely want to be mayor of Atlanta. This is the best job in the world, to be honest. I respect and honor what happens in D.C., It never grows old seeing the president's plane fly into our city, but I hope they don't call me. I want to do this job. Roddy Bunch goes on to write that despite his focus on Atlanta's most pressing issues, the mayor will play an important role in Biden's White House bid. Along with Senator Raphael Warnock, Mayor Dickens will be part of the campaign's advisory board and act as a surrogate to spread the Democrats' messaging. Oh, that's going to be interesting. Here in Metro Atlanta, where grassroots movements are sour on the city of Atlanta and Mayor Andre Dickens. If, like me, that concerns you, oh, hold on. Andre Dickens says Georgia is a battleground state, so I'll be making sure that across Georgia they know that I'm on that team. Ugh. A little further down the article, Riley Bunch writes, high-profile campaign visits to a swing state like Georgia mean local leaders will likely catch a national attention. And that means both Dickens' successes and controversies have the potential to overlap with the federal campaign. Since Dickens took office, and even well before, debate around the city's public safety training center located in unincorporated, not Atlanta, DeKalb County, has only intensified. She writes, the project has been pitched by the current and previous administration as a high-priority need for the city's police, firefighters, and EMS personnel who have been stuck training in rundown and even condemned facilities. 
But the training center has amassed wide-scale opposition from Atlanta residents who believe the facility may lead to increased militarized policing and by environmental activists who have concerns about the South River Forest, the massive urban tree canopy that will be home to the 85-acre site. Article continues, The mayor said earlier this month at an Atlanta Press Club event that he doesn't believe the controversy will leak into the presidential campaign, noting that the topic hasn't come up in his recent discussions with Biden. Well, why would it? <laughs> with all that President Joe Biden has to deal with right now, Gaza, Israel, Russia, Ukraine, inflation, student debt, a faction of Republicans aligning with Vladimir Putin, endangering Ukraine's sovereignty, well, and NATO, I guess we should throw that in since former President Donald Trump put that out there last week. The issue at the southern border that is a fantastic photo op for Republicans, but not something they actually want to legislate on. Yeah, I. I if Mayor Andre Dickens isn't going to bring it up, Joe Biden's certainly not going to bring it up to Mayor Andre Dickens. President Biden has enough going on. Anyway, uh, Dickens says, I don't think it shows up on a national landscape. Mm. But aren't all of the protesters from outside the city of Atlanta, aren't they not from Georgia? That's, that's, that's been the refrain we hear from pro-cop city supporters all this time. Look, they're not even from here. These people are outside agitators. But then he says, I don't think it shows up on a national landscape. Well, where the hell are these people coming from? Not a national issue, Mayor Dickens says, and yet when you look at the Stop Cop City social media, you have a rally in Nashville, Tennessee, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Okay, not a national issue. When you have crime stats that are in the right direction, I think people won't have much of an argument against our way of doing things. Mr. Mayor, the crime stats are coming down without the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility, which just seemed to indicate Maybe it's not as necessary as we think it is. And listen, I have gone on the record. I am not a fan of the location for environmental reasons. I'm not in favor of the sprawl of it and the location for environmental reasons. And I think for the for the cost, we're looking at what Fulton County's doing for what is it, 15 million? And what Atlanta's doing for it. Hell, is, is the price tag up to $115 million now? And I think uh, Atlanta's mostly in Fulton County. Fulton County wants a facility as well. Fulton County's building one. Atlanta's building one, but not in Fulton County. Why can't we combine our efforts and save some money? Okay, let's dive back into the article here. When you have crime stats that are in the right direction, I think people won't have much of an argument against our way of doing things, he said. <laughs> Opponents disagree, Riley Bunch writes. Atlanta resident Deborah Kahn, Atlanta resident, who aided in the collection of signatures for the training center referendum effort, said voters against the project are, quote, not going to disappear. An attempt to force approval of the facility by the public through a referendum has been stuck in legal limbo. Those of us who campaigned for the mayor, Senators Ossoff and Warnock, and the president are going to take a pass these coming elections. That's what she told Atlanta City Council during public comments earlier this month. 
Riley Bunch writes, the city hasn't yet started verifying signatures in the petition drive, holding off until the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals rules on whether or not DeKalb County residents are allowed to aid in signature collection. Mayor Dickens repeated to the editorial board his eagerness to have all the signatures counted, okay, and said he has urged the municipal clerk to begin the arduous task of verifying signatures as soon as the court decides the case, saying, we have not made one lawsuit. We only responded to lawsuits, however frivolous or however potentially real. But we have prevailed because we're standing on solid ground. I want the public to know what I suspect is a count that is going to be short of what was needed, he said. So how about <laughs> in this announcement piece in the AJC, that's the end of the article. That's it. He's running for re-election and cop city. Let me remind you, by the way, this announcement was made before the Atlanta Journal-Constitution editorial board in an interview, I guess, arranged with the mayor and the editorial board, where I guess he was going to announce he was running for re-election. Was that, was that the point of the meeting? I, again, this is it. This is the whole article. This is it. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution owned by Cox Media, and Cox Media is, I believe, the largest donor to the Atlanta Police Foundation, the APF, of course, the principal driver of the call for the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility. So obviously, I think they have an interest in a second Mayor Andre Dickens' term, blurring the lines between journalism and propaganda, you could say. And yet, at that, I'm Mayor Andre Dickens, and I've announced that I'm running for re-election, and I'm expecting a friendly piece from the AJC. That's kind of that's kind of lame. That's kind of weak. Like, where's the rest of it? Where is the list of my accomplishments? <laughs> this is not good. Now, I don't know. Maybe this is a series of interviews. The AJC does tend to do that. They like to give you bits and pieces over a series of publishings, but I, I guess that'll, that'll end in tomorrow's print edition since it didn't. I, and I don't, I haven't picked up an Atlanta journal constitution physically in a long time. Maybe, maybe that's in the, is that in this morning's? I couldn't tell you. You know what? Actually, I could tell you because it gets emailed to me every morning, but I don't remember seeing this. In today's print edition, it isn't. Yeah, it's not. If it if it is, it's not on the front page. So maybe we'll get drips and 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 spits and spurts of the mayor Andre Dickens' re-election announcement, and maybe there'll be a follow-up piece with some of his accomplishments, other than the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility, which again you can hear seems to have soured the grassroots, the grassroots movements that Joe Biden will need in the remaining 2024 election cycle. Mayor Andre Dickens seems to dismiss as having much relevance in Metro Atlanta and the state of Georgia in a battleground state that we know barely went for Joe Biden in 2020 and may be necessary for Joe Biden in 2024. I'm I'm halfway angry about this because I said I'm going to do a show because Mayor Andre Dickens announced, and then as I got through the article, I was like, "Wait, this is it? 
I could have just stayed in bed and thrown a best of episode out. <laughs> no, here I am. And I'm only a quarter of the way done. And I've got three quarters of a show to do. That's okay. There's still plenty to discuss. I'm not going to ignore all the headlines from over the weekend, although it's technically a three-day week. I know a lot of y'all are going to work. Bankers. A lot of y'all are going to work. A lot of the kids are going to school. And you're saying, Ron, if, if I got to get up and go to work and go to school, why don't you just go ahead and finish a show? I'm going to. I promise you, I'm going to. I mean, for example, Beyonce is coming for country music and checking my notes here. John Schneider, Bo Duke has issues with that. Oh, y'all. Okay. Let's just go. Let's just go to that next. This is delicious. Uh, and, and by the way, I didn't know what to think when Beyonce says, I'm going to put out a country album. Like, um, okay. But upon further review, why not? Darius Rucker did it. Okay. Hang tight. The Ron show is back in just a, just a skosh. Here on the American Radio app, AmericanRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Thank you for listening wherever it is that you do tune in to catch The Ron Show. Whether it's on American One Radio or your preferred podcast platform, I appreciate that. We should have learned by now, don't come for black women. Do not come for powerful black women in particular. Fine Willis, serve notice. And I, for one, I'm looking my wounds a little bit because I had my doubts, not going to lie. I had my doubts. I didn't like the way this was all shaping up. I, I still, to this day, would, would say, okay, probably not the wisest thing to date someone that you've hired as a special prosecutor on such a high-profile case. But the heart wants what the heart wants. We can't just deny what the heart wants, can we? I mean, I guess sometimes we should, especially if there are going to be legal and ethical issues, right? That being said, actor, singer... John Schneider, he of the Dukes of Hazard, who, by the way, can I just tell you, when I was a kid, I think I knew I was gay, maybe seven, eight, nine years old. I really, I, I, I had an idea. I did. I had an idea. You know why? Because two of my heroes were John Schneider, Bo Duke. <sighs> Them Duke boys, when they'd go skinny dipping, oh my gosh. I mean, not that, you know, this is back in the 80s on television, CBS, right? They weren't seen, but like, oh my gosh. He was such a handsome, dimply, dirty blonde, wavy hair, country boy, rebellious, but for good reasons. Yeah, I like that. I, I did. I, I had a thing for like handsome, wholesome guys. Also, Dale Murphy, Atlanta Brave center fielder, Dale Murphy. Again, handsome, one of the good guys, wholesome. I just, I had a thing for, for I had a type. I did, and I still do. Like, that, like you know, as I get older, I, Less sold on the reality of that even being a thing, but yeah. Dale Murphy sort of let me down a little bit, and I met him. He's a nice guy. Let me down a little bit when he would let uh, some Trump organization, it was like a Trump fundraiser at his uh, restaurant up in Vinings, Cobb Galleria. Like, oh, why would you do that? John Schneider, who I've met, also nice guy and holding up really well. Uh, He's gone full MAGA. He's gone full right-wing red meat. On OAN over the weekend, here he is with Allison Steinberg, who is just spitting mad, as is he, that Beyonce is coming for country music. Y'all, you got to leave these powerful black women alone. You better stop. Anyway, listen to Allison. He's in the entertainment industry just won't leave any area alone, right? They just have to seize control over every aspect, don't they? They've got to uh, they've got to make their mark just like a dog in a uh, in a dog walk park. You know, wow. every dog has to mark 
every tree. Wow. Right. So that's what's going on here. Uh, Shania and the other folks you talked about, what they did is they they were in country music and they went out. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's one thing. But people coming into country music have a because uh, I know a little something about country music. <laughs> yes, he absolutely does know a thing about country music. He has sporadically had some hit singles, and somewhat successful albums since 1981. I would argue most of that spurred on the fact that he is John Schneider, Bo Duke of the Dukes of Hazard, and a lot less to do with his singing ability or songwriting. I have so many questions. First of all, why does the question, Alison Steinberg at OAN, why does the question itself sound so much like the refrains of white flight from the mid-20th century. Why do they have to come into my neighborhood? Why do they have to move here? Why do they have to, ugh, nobody invited them. And then John Schneider applauding country artists who go outside the genre, but seeming to have a little bit of a bristling effect at Beyonce coming into the genre. Is, Is it because she's black? No, I mean, he didn't, he didn't take issue with Darius Rucker. Is it that she's a black woman? I don't know. Is it her political ideology? Huh. Have I got a thing to tell John Schneider about the likes of Willie Nelson or about Johnny Cash, Sturgill Simpson, Faith Hill, Tim McGraw? No, no issues with any of them that I can recall John Schneider being on the record. And dude, dude, Bo Duke, dude, you don't, you don't come for the beehive. You do not come for the beehive. You do not compare Beyonce to a dog marking trees at a dog walk park. And if we're going to talk about people wandering in and out of their lanes, uh, y'all, John, John is not a Southern boy. He's, he's from New York. Now, him and his mom moved to Metro Atlanta back when he was 14 years old. I didn't just know that because of Wikipedia, by the way. I I knew that because a friend of mine, I'm not saying she's not telling the truth. No, I know. I I believe her. A friend of mine went to high school with John Schneider, and I believe, if memory serves, she said they went out for a little while. I mean, that tracks. The uh, the, The dates track. And hat tip to you, if that is the case, Susan, kudos. Because I'm telling you, back <laughs> when I was a kid watching the Dukes of Hazard, my little nine-year-old self was like, I have a thing for Bo Duke. Okay, I'm sorry, I wandered back into that again. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, yeah, what is what is this like stay in your lane business? There's a lot of that lately, right? Hell, I had it happen to me. I had somebody come at me a few weeks ago. You need to stay in your lane. I, I, I'm on a I'm on a nonprofit board, and while everyone on the board has their specific functions, we all get together and vote on things for the betterment of the nonprofit organization. And so having an opinion about things that may not necessarily fall in line with what the tasks that each of us have on the board doesn't mean you're outside of your lane. It very much means that you're doing the overarching job, which is to be a member of the board and to weigh in and vote on issues, whether they do or don't fall underneath 
your list of tasks in that particular role on the board. But yeah, I had somebody come at me and go, you need to stay in your lane. To which I would say, (laughs) unless you're on the interstate and please, in Metro Atlanta, stay in your lanes. Give me a proper turn signal before you just decide to. No, there's no need to just stay in your lane. Music in particular. Oh my God. How about the fact that country music has its roots embedded in black culture? John Schneider, if he knows a thing or two about country music, does he not know a thing or two about the Ken Burns documentary that explored how black artists helped shape country music? Shortly before, of course, they were left behind. White flight again. Oh, boy. Also, unlike John Schneider, Beyonce's actually from the South. She's a Texas girl. I would say maybe this is a bump of relevance for him, but he still only has 86,000 Twitter followers to her 15.3 million. Or maybe I should do like Laura Ingraham and say, John, why don't you just stick to singing and acting? After all, I thought Uncle Jesse taught you better. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. So this is going to be one of those don't shoot the messenger types, okay? I'm just going to go point by point through an article that I saw caught my attention just a day or two ago. In the Georgia Recorder, Jacob Fischler writing... Headline, worried Biden and Trump are too old to be president? Calm down, experts on aging say. Mm, Okay. By the way, I watched Fried Green Tomatoes over the weekend. A buddy of mine that I have lunch with uh, uh, routinely on Fridays just happened to mention that when he was a kid, he was an extra in the movie and, and took a picture of him in the background of a scene. I don't remember the scene. In fact, I watched it now and I just realized I didn't spot him. <laughs> Oops. Um, sorry, Shannon. Anyway, um, watched that movie over the weekend and I, I was kind of captivated by one of the characters in the movie saying that she was, I think, 82 years old, Jessica Tandy's character, uh, 82 years old in the movie and she was in a nursing home (laughs) and At first, it wasn't like she was portrayed as someone who was sort of within her wits, but actually, as the movie goes on, you come to realize, man, she remembers a lot about her life and imparts some wisdom on Kathy Bates' character and transforms Kathy Bates into a more independent, strong-willed, strong-minded woman. And, okay, I'm kind of wandering off the reservation, right? But Jessica Tandy's character uh, in the movie was in her early 80s in a nursing home. And here we have an incumbent president who is in his 80s, Joe Biden, 81. Uh, Donald Trump, the former president, going for this position again, is 77. Uh, So let's get to the article again. Jacob Fischler writing this. Saw this in the Georgia Recorder over the weekend. Age should not... preclude either Joe Biden or Donald Trump from serving another four years as president. A group of aging experts said, is it a group of aging experts or a group of experts on aging? We'll get to that. Uh, Said Thursday at a webinar organized by the American Federation for Aging Research. If Biden, 81, and Trump, 77, are the candidates on election day, as appears likely right now, Fischler writes, they would break their own record set four years ago as the oldest candidates in U.S. history. I actually already knew that because I saw the triumphant return of Jon Stewart to The Daily Show last Monday, as a matter of fact. They are the oldest people ever to run for president, breaking by only four years the record that they set! 
Trump's lost the step, but Trump regularly says things at rallies that would warrant a wellness check. Yeah, so uh, forgive me, Mr. Fischler and your aging experts. I already knew that they were the oldest folks to run for the office. Uh, Fischler continues, but despite recent intense media coverage and significant skepticism from voters about both men, the presumptive nominees of both major parties appear up to the task of governing the panel members agreed. Again, I want to know, are these aging experts or are these experts on aging? People age at different rates, and the ill effects of advanced age don't appear to be having an impact on Biden or Trump, said S.J. Olshansky, a professor of public health at the University of Illinois at Chicago and research associate at the Center on Aging at the University of Chicago. The S standing for Stewart, by the way, Stewart is 70 years old as of this coming Thursday. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to, every time somebody gets quoted in this piece, go check and see how old they are. And by the way, Stuart turns 70 on Thursday. I turn 50 on Friday. And <laughs> as someone who's about to turn 50, I I don't even think I'm as sharp as I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Ugh. Uh, anyway, the article continues. Both in Biden and Trump's case, we've got evidence to suggest they're doing exceptionally well, Stuart Olshansky said. Don't believe what you see in the media about loss of cognitive functioning, and the like. He said, the candidates fly across the country and sometimes across the world. They can be short on sleep and disoriented by time zone changes. You know what? That happens to all of us at just about every age. And the pressures of a presidential campaign can magnify perceived failings, he added. I would actually also say that, and going, you know, going back to the flying across the country, short on sleep, disoriented, yada, 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 that, that that's not an argument that works in favor of those who are proponents of these two gentlemen running at this age. I actually think that is an argument you make when you say, do you want somebody in their late 70s or early 80s running for the highest office in the land when that sort of lifestyle, that sort of rigorous schedule affects all of us regardless of age and you know has to have an even greater impact on folks in that genre? Uh, Olshansky saying, uh, I got a, I get a phone call every time either one of them stumbles or says something that's off kilter. They're going, what's wrong? I'm going, seriously, this happens to virtually all of us. The article continues, available medical information suggests both candidates are doing fine. But don't we remember that Donald Trump actually had faked medical information put out to the media? Didn't he write his own letter once and have it? Oh, okay. Both have family histories of exceptional longevity with family members living into their 90s, Olshansky said. Both are likelier than the average man their age to survive the next four years, according to Stewart. Biden and Trump are about 75% likely to live to the end of a potential second term, while the national average is 70%, he said. Huh. That's if we all survive it. Neither candidate drinks alcohol, and Biden has eaten a healthy diet all of his life and remains physically active, which reduces his cardiovascular risk, according to Dr. Bradley Wilcox, the director of research at the Department of Geriatric Medicine at the University of Hawaii Medical School. Hang on, let me look him up. Okay, we're good. He's 64. Let's continue. Ben Barnes, a former Democratic lieutenant governor of Texas who was first elected to that state's legislator in 1960 at the age of 22, said... Age should not be a factor into a voter's choice for president, 
this is where I point out that he is, oh my God, he's 84. There's so many more important things about the candidates and about who the next president of the United States is going to be than their age, according to Ben Barnes. Obviously, there are some people who cannot function at the age that these two candidates are and should not be considered for president. But I don't think that age is something that should preclude either one of these people from becoming president. American Federation for Aging Research, a private nonprofit whose mission is to advance research on aging, scheduled the event before a string of recent events that brought renewed questions about Biden's age. But surveys of voters show that voters are concerned about the advanced age of both presidential candidates, particularly Biden, which I think is unfair. Seriously, I mean, they're separated by about three years. The gaffes, I mean, if we're going to keep, are we going to do a running tab of gaffes? And listen, this isn't me like trying to be ageist or pummeling on, uh, uh, you know, old, old men or old people for running for, like, I, I accept that, like, older people have immense amounts of wisdom and life experiences and in Biden's case, has been in uh, you know foreign and domestic diplomacy for longer than I've been alive. Like he comes with a wealth of experience. I'm not dismissing any of that. I I'm, I'm more concerned about what I see. Like when when you go to pull up his 2016 uh, DNC convention speech, and man, that's the guy. That's the guy. Whew, he was sharp as a tack, fresh off of his eight years as vice president of the United States. And then you, you you see today, I mean, like, I mean, I hate to go to the sleepy, he does look kind of tired. And again, crisscrossing the planet, going across the country and campaigning, and I have to imagine that he's not going to be doing a whole lot of stump speech campaigning because he's got a full-time job that's already pretty taxing on his time and his effort and his rigor. This is the thing that sort of concerns me. And it also honestly concerns me because I know how society sees older people. And for some reason, they see Biden as the decrepit old guy. And for some reason, we don't see the same as Donald Trump. And yet, that guy doesn't eat well, doesn't exercise, and says crazy shit all the time. That's unfair. But anyway, back to the article. More than three quarters of respondents to an NBC News poll last month said they had either major or moderate concerns that Biden had the necessary mental and physical health to perform as president for a second term. Prone to speaking gaffes, even as a younger politician, let's remember that, he does still, having recovered from a stuttering problem, occasionally get tripped up by that. Biden recently confused the names of foreign heads of states twice in a week. While referring to the current leaders of France and Germany, he used the names of the country's deceased leaders of a generation ago. Justice Department Special Counsel Robert Hur questioned Biden's mental acuity while clearing the president of wrongdoing in his handling of sensitive documents, saying one of the reasons prosecutors didn't bring charges against Biden was that they believed Biden, quote, would likely present himself to a jury, as he did during our interview of him, as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. In a press conference to complain about some details of Hur's report, including passages questioning his memory, Biden mistakenly referred to the president of Egypt as the president of Mexico. Oh, boy. Trump, who has often lied and exaggerated through his public life and continues to do so on the campaign trail, also recently sustained seeming lapses in memory. In October, he mixed up the identities of the presidents of Hungary and Turkey and last month appeared to mistake his GOP primary rival, Nikki Haley, with former U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. He later said, the Pelosi swap was intentional. Sure, Mr. Trump, let's get you back to your room. Sir. The, the, the meme of the walking the old person back to the room comes to mind. 
Again, don't shoot the messenger. I'll share that article in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Thank you so much for listening to The Ron Show, whether it's on the America One Radio app, americaonradio.com, or wherever it is you podcast. I know, that was that was tough to, to, to go through, to, to listen. I, I don't like having these discussions about uh, age and viability and guesstimating how long I think somebody's going to live or uh, how much older they look compared to eight years ago. I mean, I, I'm a different person than I was eight years ago. I'm not even sure I'm the same person when it comes to sharp, but I will say this, uh, I, I know the, the, the 2016 me, the, the guy who I, I've said this many times, I, I was fully in the Bernie Sanders camp and I'm slowly, but surely kind of, I don't want to say moderating. I'm never not going to be upset at the way the democratic party handled that primary. But I also understand where some of the Sanders campaign shortcomings were and that the DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign took full advantage of that. There are things that you just learn over time that you're like, ah, you know what, we, you, you gotta, you gotta take some responsibility for that. Uh, and I could sit here and relitigate the, 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 the Clinton Sanders thing. Trust me, I could do that till the cows come home, but I've also just gotten to be, I, like I said, I don't want to say a less sharp, but I think a, a, a different person. I, I understand, you know, you hear it when, when I talk about the cop city movement, like I completely understand what they're fighting for. I completely understand the concerns about the over-militarization of police departments, sheriff's departments, law enforcement in our society. I've seen enough of that evidence. And I've, you know, just traffic stops for me. <laughs> I've encountered the, 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 the brashness and the bravado. I also have friends who are cops. And I understand the the dangers that come with their job as well. That no innocuous pulling over of someone for speeding or, uh, you know, improper lane change or busted taillight or using your mobile device when you're not supposed to put your hands on. <clears throat> I understand there's an inherent danger in all of those. I don't like having these conversations about age. But again, as someone who's going to turn 50 on Friday, <laughs> I also understand that as you get older, I don't want to say you lose a mental sharpness. That's not not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the rigors of the most important job on the planet take their toll on anyone. I have days where I can't, I'm exhausted after six to eight hours of work. And it's all I can do to keep my eyes open to get through 30 minutes of the nightly news. And I'm not even 50. Anyway, let me turn the page a little bit. Uh, Bill Nygut, who we all know used to be on Georgia Public Broadcasting, has now sort of migrated over to the WABE NPR offering here in Metro Atlanta, uh, the moderator of the Politically Georgia podcast, which airs weekday mornings on WABE, and in conjunction with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, wrote an opinion piece that I thought was worthy of sharing. And again, this comes from the wisdom of an older person who has experienced things and knows that we need to learn our lessons from history. That's why it's wise to have older folks to... to to guide us sometimes, right? His opinion was that Nixon's sabotage of talks to end the Vietnam War has some parallels to Donald Trump's sabotaging to end talks to deal with the southern border. 
and America's immigration crisis in general. Obviously, there were more deaths in the Vietnam War, and Nygut, you know, mentions that this is not an exactly apt analogy, but that the similarities are worthy of noting. Writing, over the years since he glided down his golden escalator to announce his candidacy for president, Donald Trump has shown us something rare for a politician. He says the quiet parts out loud, repeatedly, boldly, and often defiantly. The most recent example is Trump's pressure campaign to push Republicans in Congress to scuttle the border security negotiated painstakingly by a bipartisan group of senators. When the deal went down in flames in the Senate, Trump took credit. Please blame it on me. Please, he told a crowd of supporters at a rally in Las Vegas a week ago. Bill Nygut writes, Trump wants to stir the border crisis to the boiling point, all the better to use as what he sees as a potent campaign weapon against President Joe Biden. And should I point out, by the way, this is me talking, not Bill Nygut, that it still must be true for all Republicans. Otherwise, why would Georgia Governor Brian Kemp with zero border along the Mexico border, U.S.-Mexico border, be sending our National Guard troops at our expense to Texas? It's red meat for the Republican base who aren't going to piece it together that it's their party that for the last 30 years has sabotaged any effort to deal with our immigration law, to modernize it, to meet current demands. Back to Bill Nugget. Trump's act of political sabotage reminded me of a moment in American political history when a candidate for president worked to undermine a solution to one of the most divisive and deadly chapters in American history. The secret plot hatched by Richard Nixon in 1968 to cripple negotiations that might have brought an end to the war in Vietnam. Nygut writing, to be clear, I understand that Nixon's scuttling of a plan to end an American war exists on a scale of magnitude greater than Trump's interference in the border security agreement. Nixon, by the way, a Republican. Y'all remember that, right? But the comparison is instructive because Nixon and Trump shared the same instinct for wanting to allow a dangerous crisis to continue in service of winning an election. That part. To understand what happened in the Nixon episode, he writes, you have to start on the night of March 31st, 1968, when President Lyndon Johnson shocked the nation by declaring in a live television speech that he wouldn't run for re-election. My friend Tom Johnson, Bill Nugget writes, who would later serve as the publisher of the Los Angeles Times and go on to become the president of CNN, oh, name drop, was standing behind the cameras and technicians in the Oval Office watching the speech. Tom grew up in Macon, was a student at the University of Georgia, and after going to Harvard Business School, was chosen to be in the first class of White House fellows. Under the tutelage of Press Secretary Bill Myers, Tom became an indispensable aide to the president. Bill Nygut continues writing, I've had several long conversations with Tom about the night of the fateful Johnson speech and what followed. I asked him once whether he recalled the president's demeanor after the television lights went out and he stepped out from behind the resolute desk. Relieved, Tom told me, like a huge burden had been lifted from his shoulders. Johnson's recurring heart issues were a key reason he decided not to run for re-election. And as Tom told me, Lady Bird Johnson feared her husband's heart couldn't withstand the terrible toll the Vietnam War was taking on American military personnel. Quote, she really did want them to go back to Texas and get away from the incredible stress that just was consuming him day and night from the nightly reports of which planes did not return to their carriers or the daily body counts of how many men we had had lost. 
Tom said. As Tom explained it, Bill Nygut writes, Johnson wanted to extend an olive branch to the North Vietnamese to establish a path to peace talks. To do that, he'd concluded that if he remained a candidate for re-election, the leaders of both North Vietnam and South Vietnam would see a peace overture as a disingenuous political gambit. So he signaled his sincerity by declaring he'd abandon his campaign for re-election. And on that same night, he also announced a temporary halt to the massive bombing campaign that had inflicted untold destruction on North Vietnam. Tom recalled the response to the speech from the North Vietnamese. Quote, on March 31, he makes the decision. On April 3rd, Radio Hanoi broadcast a report that it is ready to meet. And so it had worked, Tom said. But as efforts to advance the peace talks faltered during the summer of 1968, Johnson learned a secret. The Nixon campaign was working to delay the talks by sending an emissary to whisper in South Vietnamese President Gwen Van Thieu's ear that he held off. He'd get a better that if he held off, he'd get a better deal when Nixon became president. The conduit between the Nixon campaign and Thieu was Anne Chenault, a Chinese-born Republican fundraiser. Her role in the trickery gave the episode its name, the Chenault Affair. Tom described LBJ's reaction to learning of Nixon's back-channel effort. President Johnson considered it treason, he said. Treason. The information was conveyed to Vice President Hubert Humphrey, but Humphrey decided against using it because the country, quote, had already been through too much in 1968. He knew it might cost him the election. And it did. Tom acknowledged there's no sure way of knowing how much sooner the war might have ended if the talks had continued. But it wasn't until January of 1973 that all sides reached a peace agreement, nearly five years after Johnson tried to begin the process with his historic speech. Today, with the bipartisan border deal dead and buried, both Democrats and Republicans agree there's no path forward in the foreseeable future for a solution to a crisis that the majority of Americans say is a risk to the security of the nation. This is Bill Nygut continuing, by the way. Despite the differences in scale, Tom agreed there are parallels between Nixon and Trump. Well, I'll say. Tom's saying, the more I think about it, it is absolutely the undermining of a president and members of Congress. Both men, he said, but political ambition above the greater good of the country. Let that just wash over you for a minute. The parallels between Nixon and Trump don't end with impeachment. They don't end with disgrace, although only Nixon had the wherewithal to realize he needed to feel disgraced. <laughs> Trump feels emboldened. But this is another one of those scenarios, and this isn't just relegated to Trump and Nixon. No, I would say the entire Republican Party has abandoned leaving politics at the water's edge, uh, what would you say, back during the Obama presidency? I mean, there are those that would say, well, Democrats did it during Bush. We were invading a country. Again, we were going to war in two different theaters and built on faulty premises that we learned were actually faulty premises. Yeah, country first. What was that? That was, uh, that was McCain's. That uh, was on his bus, right? That was, that was his campaign slogan, country first. And yet... McCain wasn't fully embraced by the entire GOP, I think, because he actually maybe did believe you got to put the country first. Ahead of party, at least. No, the GOP has taken it even further. They want to put America first before anybody else. 
no matter where around the world. Pro-life, dot, 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 with exceptions on the other side of the planet. But for the good of the country versus for the good of election potential, yeah, that's a that's a commonality you see tied to Nixon and Trump. I'll include that opinion piece from Bill Nygut. Well done. In the show notes at ronshowatl.com. All of today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Back tomorrow, 9 to 10 a.m. on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com. Replay 5 to 6 p.m. And listen anytime, wherever you podcast. Thank you. Have a great day.